just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Speaking of Influence podcast with virtual business speaker, presentation skills and influence coach, John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. The Speaking of Influence podcast is uploaded and distributed using Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout makes it really easy to get your podcast started and out to a wide audience with lots of tips and useful tools to help you on your way. If you're interested, check the link in the show notes and start your podcast today. Well, welcome back to the show. And today I'm really happy to introduce someone who is a specialist in Stoic <laughs> philosophy. And read, uh, I read, or let's just say listened to, an amazing book by him just recently called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. His name is Donald Robertson. Please welcome to the show, Donald Robertson. Well, thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to be speaking with you. And, uh, and I've mentioned to you just before we started recording, I've been following you on social media for some time. And you definitely are one of, to me, one of the leading expert voices in, in stoicism. I've just been doing it for a long time. it was it was really nice it was really nice in your book to hear your background about why you actually ended up getting into stoicism would it be okay to share a bit of that yeah I mean I guess you know the funny thing was I really was into stoicism before it was cool or at least you know we could people might debate that but I distinctly remember everyone telling me why are you studying this nerdy obscure subject that no one's interested in uh, but not long after that, it became more popular. So it started when I was a teenager, and I, I didn't. I kind of dropped out of school and stuff. My father passed away when I was quite young, and um, I kind of got into trouble with the cops and things like that. And I ended up in a rehabilitation scheme for young offenders. And uh, you know, I decided with the help of a, a communication skills teacher, actually. Uh, to turn my life around a bit. Um, I thought I'd do something and I went to university and I studied philosophy and I was looking for a philosophy of life and uh, one of the few major schools of ancient philosophy that isn't typically part of the undergraduate curriculum, Stoicism. So I spent four years at Aberdeen and they never mentioned it once. I studied Plato and Aristotle and other uh, aspects of Greek philosophy but not the Stoics. And then after I graduated, uh, I stumbled across the works of Pierre Hadot, he's a French scholar. Uh, he focuses on the idea of philosophy as a way of life. I read his books and was training as a psychotherapist counsellor at the time. So I immediately recognised, and it seemed odd to me, that Hadot had listed all these psychological, um, he called them spiritual exercises, 
mm. that he found in Stoicism, and he compared them to Christian contemplative techniques. He'd catalogued them and written about them in great detail, and it, it seemed remarkable to me that the one thing he hadn't ever done was draw the analogy with modern psychology or psychotherapy. And so that seemed really obvious to me. So sometimes in life, you, you find uh, a book kind of writes itself almost. So I thought, well, if I don't write this, someone else will. It seems like a really obvious thing. So yes. I kind of ended up writing a book about it. And then uh, people, when you write one book, people ask you to write others. And then t- nearly 25 years later, I, after I first stumbled across Stoicism, I'm still talking to people about it. But I'm still 100% committed to Stoicism. I, you know, I, I found it, it clicked with me, made a lot of sense, and it still makes sense to me today. But you teach this now, yes? Yeah, I started teaching it in a sense early on because I always did a lot of workshops and I trained psychotherapists in the UK and supervised them. So I ended up teaching a lot of therapists initially about Stoicism. Uh, speaking about it at conferences and stuff and uh, and now I, I run online courses about it and so on write books about it give a lot of talks about it more aimed at the general public I started off more with psychotherapists and now it's become more of a, a general audience yeah I mean I see some elements of stoic, stoic philosophy relating to things like CBT cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. therapy right and so i can see that it these sorts of principles do get used what what effects has this kind of philosophy had on on you particularly in your life in my personal life i, I think stoicism gave me um a sense of direction um when i really needed it uh, many people say they see stoicism like a, a, a kind of secular alternative to Christianity. And what they often mean by that is it gives them something that's like a religion, but really a philosophy. It's not based on faith or revelation. It's based on philosophical reasoning. But mm. it gives them a whole worldview and a set of fundamental moral values through which to interpret life, um, find a purpose, a sense of direction. So that, I'd say that's the main thing that I got from Stoicism. But it also uh, the main corollary of that, or consequence of it, is that it... it Arguably, it helps us to build emotional, psychological resilience, and that's partly why it dovetails with modern cognitive behavioral therapy, like you said. Yeah, I do. Uh, I've been doing coaching, professional coaching, for a number of years now, and certainly since having studied more about stoicism from people like yourself and um, is it uh, is Brian Irving? Was it? I think, but uh, Ryan Holiday, Bill oh, Irvine, and Ryan Holiday. Irvine, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think uh, I've applied certainly applied a lot of that from for myself and got a lot of value from it. But also find myself using it with clients quite often because yeah. the, the philosophy of it really does stand the test of time and the mental resilience aspects of it, especially this year, are really important. Yeah, I mean, we kind of thought eventually we'll reach peak stoicism in the sense that people will get fed. It seemed like it's a kind of fad, like everyone's rediscovered it and they've got really into it. But it keeps growing and growing. And then the pandemic happened and it just went through the roof, like the number of interviews and articles and, and so on about stoicism, just as we thought it might be kind of plateauing, has, has kind of shot, shot up again. Um, book sales and stoicism have gone through the roof since the start of the pandemic right. for obvious reasons maybe but also you know the for instance the, the main uh, classic is uh, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius which was written in the middle of a pandemic uh, called the Antonine Plague um, and in part Marcus is 
that's one of the main things that, that he's coping with. And so you mentioned coaching as well, like without a shadow of doubt, I was mainly the first book I wrote on Stoicism was called The Philosophy of CBT, and it was an academic text. It was mainly meant for psychotherapists um, and philosophers, but it reached a, a lay audience, as we say, like a general audience. And uh, life coaches actually seem to have got more interested in Stoicism than psychotherapists, which is something I was wrong about. I thought the psychotherapists would be all over it. Um, and for a couple of reasons, actually, they've been a bit slow on the uptake, but, but coaches have embraced stoicism over the past few years. Yeah, and to me that's kind of interesting as well because I, I, I tend to think that the coaching industry or the co- most coaches I know um, really tend to love more of the sort of new agey, woo-woo spirituality kind of stuff, which stoicism uh-huh. really isn't that. Uh, it's a very practical life philosophy, yeah, it's a philosophy in the Socratic tradition, you know, so um, certainly the ancient Greeks and Romans had their superstitions and their religions and their cult practices and, and so on. But Stoicism stands out as, a, you know, broadly speaking, it's a very rational, grounded uh, view of things. It's a very down-to-earth philosophy in many respects. So I think uh, I think the reason that CBT practitioners increasingly there's a lot of pressure there always has been now there's more and more pressure on clinical psychologists and cbt practitioners to stick very closely to evidence-based protocols that have been established by researchers right and so because of that i think they feel that they kind of haven't got the tape the space or time or the headroom to to go off and read classics as much um as maybe coaches and, and trainers have um, I, that's my best attempt at trying to understand it because CBT is based on stoicism. It's derived from stoicism. So I just assumed they would be kind of like, you know, the first people to engage with it. Um, mm. But it's been other groups of people that have got passionately into stoicism. Interesting, interestingly enough, I think a lot of that has maybe been fueled by people like Tim Ferriss and uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. Tim Ferriss. Um, Ryan, Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday are the, the two people that have really catapulted Stoicism into a, you know, a whole different domain, like a whole new audience. It's, it's been interesting to see, and I, and I certainly remember uh, downloading um, the the Tao Seneca from uh, from Tim Ferriss after after getting those those books published and found them I found them very interesting. One of the things that uh, there may be some people who are watching or listening who haven't really come across stoicism, amazingly still, or are really wondering, maybe have heard about it and don't really know what it's about. I mean, what's, what are some of the nutshell principles of stoicism that would would sum it up for people, perhaps? Well, first of all, we should say a little tiny bit about the history. You know, when we talk stoicism, we're talking about an ancient Greek school of philosophy that was founded in 301 BC at Athens by a shipwrecked Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Citium. And most of the early texts are lost apart from fragments, but Stoicism flourished for nearly 500 years in Greece and then later in the Roman Republic and the Empire. And so the main surviving texts we have are letters and essays by Seneca, who was an orator and a speechwriter for the Emperor Nero, uh, Epictetus, who was a freed slave, who became a teacher of philosophy at Rome and later moved to, to Nicopolis in Greece. And Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor and is, is best known today 
for having appeared on screen with Russell Crowe in the, <laughs> in the movie Gladiator in right. the form of, of Richard Harris, if yeah. you remember. That, that was another thing that made people interested in stoicism. It's a little bit old on now, but when that movie came out, a lot of people started to, to read the meditations. Um, right. Well, was they making from... a sequel. Was the, oh really? Well, I, I, I guess not with the same character, right? Because he he died. With his, um, uh, with the children of uh, Lucilla, if I remember rightly. I, I remember really loving that film and I watched it ever again, especially the soundtrack. It has the most stunning oh, yeah. soundtrack. Um, but uh, did you find it to be a particularly stoic film? No, there's a couple of articles, but actually I wrote an article and a couple of other people wrote articles. There's maybe two or three lines in it. There's one in particular that looks like it's kind of a paraphrase. Um, it's something, it's like at the end where he says something like, uh, someone once told me, he's talking about Marcus Aurelius, that death smiles at us all and all that we could do is smile back or something like that. And that sounds like a paraphrase of one of the passages in the meditations. But other than that, there's, there's only very fleeting references. But actually, I read in an interview recently that Russell Crowe, when he was making that movie, here's a bit of movie trivia for you kids. They, <laughs> Russell Crowe, when he was making that movie, apparently really wanted, was really into the meditations and really wanted more philosophy in the script. And he kind of fought for that. But in the end, mm. he's just got one or two little passing references. But if they do make a sequel, then maybe, who knows, there might be a little bit more philosophy in it. I think that could be good. I mean, are, are there any films that are particularly stoic that aren't necessarily... Maybe just... Maybe we'll refer to it. But... There's a terrible movie that I saw recently called... Well, it's kind of like a sort of... How would you describe it? A, a revenge movie. Like, mm-hmm. um, like, well, I mean, it's mediocre. It's not terrible. Like, but... Uh, kind of thing Liam Neeson likes to do. Yeah, yeah. like a Liam Neeson type thing. And it's called Acts of Vengeance, and it's got, weirdly, um, it, this guy falls through the window of a bookshop, he gets stabbed in the leg at the beginning, and he grabs a paperback and stems the blood flow in his thigh with the, the first thing that comes to hand, which is this paperback book, and he staggers home, bleeding, and then he, he looks at this book, and it turns, surprise, surprise, it happens to be the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And then he starts reading this book and there's little uh, references to it throughout the rest of the movie. So there you go. Like, it's not the best showcase for Stoicism, but there is that weirdly there is a movie, that re- uh, an action movie that references Stoicism. I think those are the only ones that I can really think of where it's kind of an explicit thing. But, uh, and then there's like an old movie, there's the Decline and Fall of the... Uh, the Roman Empire with Alec Guinness playing Marcus Aurelius in it from like the late 60s or something. Uh, mm. There's not much philosophy in that, but it tells us about Marcus Aurelius. Uh, well, so th- there's one or two little kind of obscure. Yeah. What would be the the main traits of Stoicism that would make you think something was, yeah, that other than sort of quoting the Stoics? Um, you know, we, we tend, I think, if, tend to have this idea of stoicism as just being a bit, bit um, keep your chin up, stiff upper lip kind of thing, which is... Well, that brings us back to defining it, doesn't yeah. it? So the, like, we should do exactly what you've done, which is start off by saying what it isn't, if you know, listeners will forgive us for taking a slightly roundabout path. Mm-hmm. So the word stoicism today, when it's written with a lowercase s, means an unemotional coping style. And uh, that's a completely different thing. It's loosely related to, but really a caricature of, a degraded 
form of much, much, it's a very simplistic idea, just kind of having a stiff upper lip. Whereas capitalist stoicism um, is an ancient Greek school of philosophy that lived, survived for about 500 years and was much more nuanced and complex. And the reason it's important to distinguish these things, particularly from my point of view, is that in psychology, we have established well-known questionnaires for measuring lowercase stoicism like the uh, Liverpool Stoicism Scale is one of the tools that's used. And it's well known among researchers that lowercase stoicism is actually bad for you. Like, it's unhealthy, and uh, at least, to, like, not to resilience, but to psychological vulnerability. Whereas capitalist stoicism is the philosophical basis for cognitive therapy, which is the leading evidence-based form of psychotherapy. So the research literature suggests that although these two words sound identical to listeners, one of them refers to something that's actually unhealthy psychologically, whereas the other one refers to something that's potentially healthy, opposite end of the scale. Yeah. So it's important to, to make that clear. For sure. What do they believe? The ancient Stoics believed that virtue is the only true good. That's their foundational principle. It's an ethic that's the core of Stoicism. And we call that a virtue ethic. And by virtue, they, I think the word arity that they use is often better translated as moral wisdom because it's a kind of insight or wisdom that allows us to understand the value of things and then that gives us a, a sense of purpose and direction in life. And the Stoics think that someone who believes that virtue is the only true good and therefore all external things like health, wealth, reputation um, are relatively indifferent. What, what's more important is the use that you make of them. Like, so money won't make you happy, as it were. Like, in the hands of a genocidal tyrant, money would be a bad thing. Like, it's like coffee. They say it allows you to do stupid things more quickly and with more energy. So that's like money allows you to do stupid things more quickly like, and more easily. So money in itself isn't intrinsically good. It just gives you, it just allows you to exercise your will more on your environment and on other people. Well, that's good if you happen to be wise and virtuous, but if you happen to be foolish and vicious then, you know, that might not be a great idea. Um, so the Stoics say these things are what they call indifference, external things, like it's natural to prefer wealth over poverty and health over sickness and friends over enemies, but they're not intrinsically good in the way that moral wisdom is. It's moral wisdom that makes everything else good and moral ignorance that makes everything else bad or vice that makes everything else bad. But the main corollary of that is that if you go through this conversion where you suddenly place more value on your own character than on your possessions, for instance, you're going to probably become more emotionally resilient as a consequence because you're going to be better able to cope with loss uh, and setbacks in life and misfortune, and you're going to be less perturbed by other people's opinions of you and less prone to manipulation, the Stoics would say, um, because you, you know, they would say it's harder for a tyrant to threaten or manipulate a Stoic, like because there's nothing that he can threaten to take away from them. Like he can't. It's, Epictetus said nobody can take away your your own uh, freedom, uh, and that's uh, that's all that you really need to focus on if mm. you want to be a Stoic. So uh, this is an ethic that has psychological implications for resilience building. In a nutshell. The, yeah, the one of the techniques that I know that I think I ended up, I think I learned it reading from, um, William Evans' book, but uh, was the negative visualization philosophy, and I and I tried that. 
because it doesn't seem appealing. I mean, something I talk to my clients about, it, I frame it up first with saying, I know this doesn't seem like a nice thing to do. Like you think, uh, especially about in the personal development world where they, so many people say you attract what you think about kind of thing. To me, it's just kind of bullshit. But um, yeah, it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's completely. <laughs> so, so many people right. say this kind of thing. It's like, well, that's why people are resistant to something like um, after having heard that for so long. Something like negative visualization. I said, no, for yeah. me, it was this essential uh, in doing this. It actually was something that made me appreciate so much more what I have in my life right now, and to help let go and recognize and let go of the attachment of it's not always going to be this good. It's not always going to be yeah. this wonderful. Appreciate it now. Well, in cognitive therapy, there's a long tradition of getting people to visualize uh, unpleasant scenes or uh, feared catastrophes and so on. And I could bore you all day with a very detailed... I used to, start, I used to train psychotherapists for a living, so I would talk right. um, all day um, about the many different ways... Off the top of my head, I would say there are like about six or seven distinct psychological processes that we can potentially activate during uh, mental rehearsal or imaginal exposure or whatever you want. There are a bunch of different names that we use in psychology to refer to similar techniques that all involve closing your eyes and picturing some kind of unpleasant situation repeatedly, usually. The most important one in psychology and the most robustly established. So I'd say this also to people who are like, well, I don't know if this is a good idea. I'd say two things, three things, four things. There's like a, a bunch of things we could say about this. Probably, I would argue that the most robustly established technique in the entire field of psychotherapy research is what we call exposure therapy. And the mechanism underlying it, we call emotional habituation. And that's the finding which we've known for well over 50 or 60 years now the foundation of all anxiety treatment and evidence-based psychotherapy that anxiety abates naturally uh, through repeated prolonged exposure under controlled conditions and so what that means is that if you visualize something you've got a cat phobia and you visualize cats uh, you're frightened of losing your job and you picture yourself losing your job if you do that repeatedly and for long enough and as long as you're not doing other things that would maintain your anxiety uh, then your anxiety will naturally wear off and it will do it'll wear off permanently uh, if you keep doing it. Yeah. Um, but a couple of things we know about it are that it's very common, like people have a strong urge to terminate exposure prematurely. So, of course, when people get anxious, they think, screw this, I'm not going to do it anymore. And the risk in doing that is it can actually lead to sensitization. So I, I would attach a caveat, which is this technique is problematic for two reasons when people use it as a self-help technique. So one is that there'll be a natural tendency for them not to do it long enough, in which case they could actually make themselves more distressed about the thing that they're picturing about. And also, I guess there's three problems. The other one is that people, if you just do this without doing anything else, if you just keep it really simple and just picture the scene, your anxiety will abate. But if you're trying to do lots of other things at the same time, like trying to breathe differently, if you're having a dialogue in your mind where you're worrying about the implications of things or overthinking it, then again, these could also prevent habituation and, and make your anxiety worse. So you could turn exposure therapy into just worrying like, or ruminating morbidly if you're not careful. So we see clients do that all the time. So as a form of self-help, we'd have to be like, okay, be careful that you don't do that. And then the other point uh, is that if somebody has severe problems, like if they have panic disorder or if they were severely clinically depressed, 
when they pictured something upsetting, it might become too overwhelming for them, um, in which case they, they probably would also terminate the exposure prematurely and then it could backfire on them. So I, I would say um, this is one of the few stoic techniques that I'd say we have to be a little bit cautious about using it in practice if you don't have panic disorder or severe depression or psychosis and you are patient about doing it, you pick something that's not overwhelming and you just keep it really simple, you're not allowing yourself to do anything that might make your anxiety worse, then it it will work pretty well for the majority of people, even just in a a kind of self-help context. But to put it another way, in a clinical setting, it usually needs a little bit more assessment and supervision to make sure that 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 technique works well. Bill Irvine's rationale for doing it is different from the Stoics' rationale for doing it. So sometimes Bill Irvine's book is great, but in some ways he describes Stoicism in a way that makes it sound a little bit more like Epicureanism, which is a rival philosophical school. And his rationale for doing uh, this kind of exposure therapy is that he thinks if you imagine losing things that you're attached to, it'll make you, uh, it'll prevent... um, what do you call it, hedonic adaptation, yeah. and therefore you'll, you'll learn to experience more gratitude for things uh, in the present moment while you have them. And that might be a reason for doing it, but it's not the Stoics' main reasoning. It's not clinicians' main reason for doing it. In clinical practice, the main reason for doing that technique is emotional habituation. And the Stoics, there's a couple of hints that they were also aware of this. Plutarch, a later writer who was influenced by the Stoics, says explicitly that he understands this concept. And actually, in one of Aesop's fables really clearly explains it. So there were ancient thinkers that grasped this concept of anxiety wearing off if you patiently keep exposing yourself to an upsetting scene. But the, the Stoics put more emphasis on something else, which we they don't have a name for. But today we would call cognitive distancing. It's a technical term that we use in cognitive therapy. And so Stoics say, look, they think that when we see things as catastrophic or somebody is an idiot or an asshole or, you know, when we experience strong emotions, it's because we're fusing or merging our value judgments with external events that are outside our direct control. Um, so there's the famous saying of Epictetus is quoted by all cognitive therapists. It's, just, uh, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And so that article, this concept of cognitive distancing. So if I say something is big or small or it's wood or it's metal or it's black or it's white, these are descriptions of physical properties. But if I say it's a catastrophe, that sounds like a description of the external event, but really it's more like me going, oh no, it's more like an expression of my value judgment and emotional reaction to it to say it's a catastrophe. So there's a sense in which it's more arbitrary and subjective. It comes totally from me rather than being a description of the event. In nature, there are no catastrophes. It's nature is indifferent to everything. Um, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Right. And so other people might view the same event and not think it's a catastrophe, or even more shockingly, I myself, a year from now, might look at the same event and not view it as a catastrophe any longer, Yeah, even though yeah. the facts are identical. Um, so the Stoics want us to, this, Marcus Aurelius says we need to separate our value judgments from external events and realize that it, it's not a catastrophe, but I'm catastrophizing it. As we say in therapy, I, I'm choosing to look at it through these lines. We, Aaron Beck, the founder of cognitive therapy, compared it to wearing 
uh, coloured spectacles, like the opposite of rose-tinted glasses, like shitty coloured glasses, catastrophe coloured glasses. And he said that cognitive distancing would be like taking the glasses off and realising that you're just looking at the world through catastrophe-tinted lenses and that the guy next to you is, is wearing rose-tinted glasses or whatever. You could swap if you wanted, right? But when you see the catastrophe, you see you're seeing the lens rather than uh, a quality of the event itself. Right. And so the Stoics think that we should take ownership for that. And so when they do this premeditatio malorum, this is the Latin name that uh, Seneca gives it, uh, negative visualization. You could translate that as premeditation of adversity or premeditation of misfortune. Um, when the Stoics are doing it, they're actually rehearsing viewing it with indifference. So they're rehearsing, imagining their partner leaving them or getting sacked from their job, but at the same time realizing that the awfulness of it is just a value judgment that they're projecting onto it and that that's a kind of arbitrary, subjective thing. So we call this also called verbal diffusion, like separating the value judgment from the external event. So it's quite unlike the rationale that Bill Irvine gives to it. Yeah. Um, and I think the stoic rationale is better. It's more consistent with the way that cognitive therapy works today. We now know that this cognitive distancing is also one of the most robust uh, and effective techniques in the, in the field. Sure. There are many research studies on it. Um, and it's used for a, a range of, of problems, even quite severe problems nowadays. So the stoics were way ahead of their time in that regard. And the other thing I'd say about the, Bill Irvine's version is he calls it negative visualization. Now, for the stoics, um, in a sense, the thing that they're picturing, being sacked from work, like getting sick, losing all your money or whatever, isn't negative. Uh, they want us to realize that we, the negativity comes from our own value judgment. So if anything, it would be indifferent visualization. Like, and sometimes people, when they say they struggle with that technique, I hear a lot from people who try some of the techniques and, and I'm not sure how to, to get them to work. Yeah. Um, they say, I'm visualizing all these negative things and it's just making me sad. I think, yeah, it made me sad too if I visualized loads of negative things. But what the Stoics want you to do is to realize there's nothing good or bad that thinking makes it so and that negativity is a, a value judgment that you're imposing on it. So you, you're not gaining it from the way you've described it. Like the, Your value judgment is still completely fused with yeah. the event. Like you haven't separated the two which is the the real point of the technique so it's more like uh, emotionalizing the whole thing and uh, making yeah. it like this isn't it's, it's just a thing it's and another way of looking at that which yeah the stoics also talk about you, you could look at it from a, a slightly different one way of looking at it is just to take ownership for the value judgment but the flip side of that would be to describe the event in more objective language mm. right and so the Stoics compare that to a physician describing disease in a patient. Like he does it very objectively and very in a very matter-of-fact way. Or they would they could just say like, and they do say in the way that maybe we talk about somebody else's problems, we're able to do it in a matter-of-fact or detached way. Like when the same thing happens to us, though it's oh my god, I can't believe this is happening to me, you know. And so learning to describe things in a factual, objective way makes it easier for us to problem solve figure out coping strategies and, and do something about it. Um, and that leads us neatly, my friend, into this topic of rhetoric. Right. Because uh, something that would, because that, this has obviously got to do with language. 
Mm. Like cognitive therapy always struck me as being very much about language. We talk cognitive this, cognitive that. Cognitive means thinking, mm-hmm. um, but our thoughts are expressed in language. And so everything cognitive about cognitive therapy is also basically linguistic. It's a particular use of language we're talking about. In cognitive therapy, traditionally, we help clients to identify thinking errors like overgeneralization and unfounded assumptions and uh, leaping to conclusions about what other people are thinking, which we call mind reading or catastrophizing, like, which is exaggerating things. And those are similar also to not unlike uh, fallacies in, in formal logic or uh, tropes that are used in, in rhetoric. Rhetoric catastrophizing is hyperbole. Um, you know, there's a, it's a form of rhetoric. In a way, it's a kind of alarmist form of rhetoric that we use. And I think that that's a helpful. It's strange that we don't frame it like that in cognitive therapy. Um, because it's almost like we evolved rhetoric as a way of manipulating the emotions of other people. Maybe that puts a neg- too much of a negative spin on it. But we evolved rhetoric as a way of communicating with other people, um, evoking emotions, like focusing their attention, having an effect on an audience. Um, but somehow it's like we slipped unintentionally into using the same kind of strategies on ourselves, like in the privacy of our own minds. And so we use metaphors that are vivid and evocative. Like I have a client uh, that does a presentation and they'll say, um, I just felt as if somebody uh, bit my nose off uh, for no reason and I, I wished they shot me down in flames and I wished the, the ground would open up and swallow me. And if they were describing the same event in objective language, they might just say somebody said that they disagreed with something. Right. Which sounds far less anxiety-provoking, right? <laughs> yeah. But they've used colourful language. Uh, they've used metaphors in particular yeah. to, in hyperbole to, to really create this dramatic effect. But they're doing it to themselves. And, sometimes, and it's like they're, they're not really thinking about the consequences of it. Would you want to make it seem more dramatic to yourself? Like if that's just making you feel anxious and, and freaking you out. Yeah. And so I, often in therapy, we can see that clients are abusing language unintentionally like, as a way of like, making themselves feel even more upset about things. And so the Stoics had this kind of um, love-hate, they were kind of frenemies with the sophists and rhetoricians. Mm-hmm. Um, because Cicero, I think it was, said that the, the Stoics wrote books on rhetoric, which Cicero, one of the greatest orators of antiquity, thought were terrible. Um, because he said, Stoic rhetoric's rubbish. Like, he's like, you guys just want to stick to the facts and explain everything really objectively. And he goes, that's not how rhetoric works in a, a court of law or in a political yeah. speech or something. You need to flip up the audience's emotions. And the Stoics were like, well, we kind of want to undo that, right? Because we think when you guys do that, you're distorting uh, reason and you're like, manipulating truth and like, the anger and fear gets in the way of people thinking things through rationally. And, you know, funnily enough, this has all become very topical. Mm. It's always been topical. But today, I cannot think of a finer example of uh, the rhetoric of politicians uh, distorting reason, whipping up emotions in a way that's counterproductive to dealing with a crisis than the current pandemic and the way that political propaganda 
has been used to uh, distort public health information. This is something I care about, having worked in public health mm. uh, and evidence-based practice for many years. Anyone that works in that field, I think at the moment, is just shocked at the absolute dog's breakfast, like the mess uh, that we're currently observing, in, particularly in the United States, yeah. right, but in other countries as well. And the misinformation and the confusion and the anger and outrage and fear that people experience and the extent to which it's whipped up by the news media, uh, social media and political hacks, like, to be blunt about it. I think it's fair to say, right? Yeah. Whatever yeah. side of the debate people are on politically, I think they can recognise it. So yeah. it's a shame that uh, politics and rhetoric have clouded the, the public health uh, debate around the virus. Yeah, I think we all see it. We all know it's going on. We don't necessarily all understand exactly how it works, but uh, you know there are certain elements of rhetoric that certainly you know you see it. You see it particularly in the UK that they uh, they're three word pithy phrases that still but it's still set in US politics as well. Really, uh, that still get people elected. You know, like. Uh, um, the recent elections were uh, get Brexit done is like these pithy three-word phrases that are rhetorical devices. And, yeah. uh, uh, but you also, like you said, all the hyperbole, all the metaphor that goes in making this huge emotional drama about things. Uh, yeah. Very often they're saying all these things without really saying anything, only not really conveying information, actually just conveying drama and outrage. One other thing that you can do rhetorically, there's good and bad rhetoric, I should say that from the outset, yeah. and that's a, another topic I've got keyed up that we will we'll come to in a moment. So we're talking about the abuse of rhetoric, let's say. Right? So one of the things that a rhetorician or an orator can do is present facts selectively. Um, so you cherry pick. Yeah. Right? And this is something that's fundamentally counter to the scientific method. And the experts in doing that are newspapers and the news media. So the one piece of advice that I feel like I would give to anybody that's looking at this at the moment is not to get public health advice from the mainstream news media, right? Because uh, whether they're left or right or whatever, they always misrepresent scientific, like you're much better um, going to like credible scientific sources, even government sources directly government reports or things like new scientists scientific yeah America. i get i get my science scientist every week <laughs> the telegraph and the guardian yeah, yeah. and fox they will just pick whatever information fits their agenda and then kind of ignore or trivialize anything that doesn't mm. like and there's an art to doing that focusing the attention or just ignoring certain so it's we call it selective thinking in therapy it's fundamental to, to many mental health problems so yeah. for, for example when somebody is anxious They'll, they'll spot signs of danger and focus on them like a magnifying glass, but they'll ignore signs of safety that, that other people might notice that would counteract it, yeah? So they don't arrive at a balanced appraisal of the situation because they're only looking at it like, from a one-sided perspective. And it's the same with depression. When people are clinically depressed, they have cognitive biases, so they'll only look at the bad stuff. If someone with clinical depression writes a book and they get 100 reviews on Amazon, and 99 of them say that it's either amazing or it's at least, you know, reasonably good. But there's one review that says it was garbage and they're like the worst writer in the universe. A depressed person will only talk, think, remember the negative review and they'll kind of ignore, trivialize or sideline all the other ones in many cases because they have this unconscious 
negative schematic bias that primes them to, to focus. It's like confirmation bias. They'll look for information that maintains their depression. And we, we say angry people will look for evidence that maintains their anger and ignore our evidence that will contradict it. So this is one of the risks with whipping up emotions like that strong. They maintain themselves by looking at details in a selective way. And the Stoics wanted us to be more balanced and more rounded in our appraisal situations, to calmly look at all of the facts. And that, you know, often that means arriving at a kind of provisional or mixed conclusion, acknowledging ambiguity and uncertainty in some cases. Um, so Mark, that leads us maybe into the, what's the relationship between these things? You know, this all kicked off with the sophists kind of, uh, in a sense, arrived on the scene in ancient Athens uh, round about, like, uh, let's see, 400 and, around about 450 BC, a little bit earlier. So the first major sophist was a guy called Protagoras, and then there were a bunch of other famous uh, sophists that followed in his wake. And they were revolutionary figures in, uh, in the education and the culture of Athens. We get our word sophistication from the, the sophists. They taught culture, virtue, sophistication, and the use of language in political assemblies and in law courts to the Athenians. And they became like pop stars. They would tour all the cities and they get paid a fortune for giving these speeches. And this is where, the, you know, in a sense, how rhetoric and oratory uh, developed. They're also like self-improvement gurus. And wherever you'd find a sophist in ancient Athens, you'd also find Socrates because he followed them around. Like, and he loved the sophist. He had a frenemy relationship with the sophists. <laughs> he loved to argue with them. But he also liked to quote them. So he didn't just hate it. He liked a lot of things about them, but he also said, well, you guys are kind of the opposite of me because you will say whatever the crowd want to hear. Right? You just want to attract the biggest crowd and get the biggest round of applause. So you're, we would take, today we would say you're sellouts. It's essentially what Socrates was calling these guys. And uh, he said, look, real philosophy is the opposite. You know, sometimes you have to tell people things that they don't want to hear. And uh, you, know, so you have to do it, think things through more meticulously. Yeah. He said the sophists would give long, elaborate speeches, but they didn't really engage in the question and answer approach that he was known for. So when he talked to them, he said, you, you need to just speak one sentence at a time so I can evaluate each step along the way of what you're saying. Um, and so there was always this kind of rivalry between the sophists and the, and the, the philosophers, especially in the Socratic tradition. Yeah. And the Stoics are very much in the Socratic tradition. Now, Marcus Aurelius, the last famous Stoic, when he was a young man, he, he was uh, appointed... Caesar by the preceding emperor Antoninus Pius, but also his adoptive grandfather. He was adopted by Antoninus Pius, but that made his adoptive grandfather a more famous Roman emperor called Hadrian. So Hadrian uh, was really one that chose Marcus Aurelius to be part of this long-term succession. And Marcus Aurelius uh, had to study rhetoric, both in Greek and Latin. He was fluent in uh, uh, Greek rhetoric, although he was Roman. He was born at Rome. His family was Spanish. And so he was uh, a highly accomplished, at least a fairly highly accomplished orator and, and speechwriter, both in Greek uh, and Latin. And the Meditations, is, is, his book is written in Greek. And uh, so people read it, they like it. It survives because in some ways it's well-written. People don't tend to think of it as a, a kind of literary masterpiece, mm. but it is well-written. And that's one of the reasons that people love it today. 
it's mainly lots of little passages or aphorisms, which is typical of a Stoic approach. And then in the 19th century, an Italian scholar called Angelo May found some letters, a cache of letters, between Marcus Aurelius and his rhetoric teacher, a guy called Marcus Aurelius Fronto, who was by Romans considered almost like a second Cicero. He was like, a, in his day, a highly acclaimed uh, teacher of rhetoric and a, a sophist, uh, part of a movement called the Second Sophistic. And one of the odd things about those letters is that we can see Fronto becoming anxious about the fact that Marcus in his late teens is becoming more and more enamored of Stoic philosophy. And in particular, his Stoic mentor, a guy called Junius Rusticus. And we know that eventually Marcus kind of made this break and he went from studying rhetoric. He carried on studying and using rhetoric, but at some point he made a shift to thinking, no, my main thing, I'm going to major now, as it were, metaphorically, in Stoic philosophy rather than in rhetoric. Like a student who kind of changes a subject halfway through a degree course, yeah. a, a little bit, I would say. And you see Fronto getting, kind of getting a little bit anxious about it, losing his precious student, the, the future emperor. Right. Um, uh, he's also a close family friend. And these private letters that were never meant for publication, they give us a real insight into the private life of this famous Roman emperor. Uh, but Fronto says some interesting things to Marcus about what we're talking about right now, the relationship between rhetoric and philosophy. And Fronto says, look, he says, he says it very, he puts it very well, actually. He says, philosophers have to ask a lot of questions and they analyze things very deeply. In order to do that, they have to make fine distinctions, distinctions that other people don't normally make. Like earlier when we talked about cognitive distancing, this is a concept that people can explain, but it's not a familiar concept to everybody. So sometimes they have to introduce neologisms, technical terms. Um, and his way of putting it is that philosophers speak in paradoxes. Now, parad paradoxia in Greek means contrary to popular opinion. So they have to say things that people don't understand that seem alien and strange to them because they're struggling to kind of articulate subtle truths by, by the very nature of philosophy. And Fronto says, but the thing is you have to be able to clothe these abstract concepts and words that people can understand. Otherwise, what's the point of it? Um, and he's talking about for the benefit of others, but you could also say for your own benefit as well. And Fronto says the author, Fronto has a very interesting idea of rhetoric, by the way, for such an influential rhetorician. He says something really quite stunning about what he thinks the discipline of rhetoric entails. He tells us this is the essence of rhetoric. And he doesn't describe the conventional tropes and so on. Um, he, in methods, he, what he says very bluntly is that to be a great rhetorician, you have to put more effort than normal into trying to identify exactly the right word or phrase to express your, to express your meaning. And he says to do that, you have to study uh, obscure poetry, you have to study culture, you have to know, like, you have to learn a lot of phrases and words from other writers so that, you know, you have this treasure trove that you can dip into. Mm -hmm. And he says when you're expressing something you should use, he says a novel uh, phrase or word because it will grab the attention of your audience and it has to be a phrase that better expresses the meaning that you intend than the common way of articulating it. 
And he says, if you're just using novelty for the sake of it, that's bad rhetoric. Like you, it needs to be novel and actually articulate your concept better than the common way of putting it would. And he says, sometimes it takes me days or, you know, or longer to come up with just one word for a speech to kind of really capture the point I'm trying to make. And that's remarkable. And he says to, to Marcus, when uh, you're writing, you should practice taking philosophical sayings. He says, wise maxims, uh, paradoxes. And he says, rephrase them at least two or three times, trying to find the right metaphor or the, just the right word, a figure of speech to articulate it in a memorable and evocative manner. And so mm. people read that in these letters by Fronto. It's partly him saying, look, you, you need rhetoric and philosophy to, to complement one another. Um, and then they looked at the meditations and they thought, wow, I mean, it looks like that might be what he's doing in the meditations. So here in these letters, we have this guy telling him when he's a teenager, you should practice this writing exercise. And then we have his book, The Meditations, which where he seems to be, that would explain the unusual format and structure of that book, where it's just a lot of disconnected sayings. And often he's repeating the same point many times, but using expressing it in different ways, using different analogies and metaphors to get his point across. Because right. he wants to really kind of nail the idea and make it, but this is for himself. Although it is possible that some of these things he's practicing to incorporate into speeches later. Um, but I think it's mainly for his own benefit. Uh, he wants to, to come out with just the right phrase. We talked about these glasses. He says that our value judgments are like a beam of light shining on an object and illuminating it. And uh, he said that, you know, light illuminates objects. Surely pure light, the light of the sun, he said, should illuminate objects. Uh, and it's neither, it's not exhausted by them, they're absorbed by them, not deflected by them, but it just spreads over their surface. And he thinks this is what consciousness should be like as we are articulating it. So we don't become, um, he's saying we shouldn't become too merged or identified yeah. too much or too invested in, in the things uh, that we're looking at, but in a kind of dispassionate way just to illuminate them. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. And one of the things that I took away from listening to your book uh, on how to think like a Roman emperor was this thing about uh, the sort of almost anti-sophistry sort of thing of, you know, it's not all about the flourishes and the, uh, the emotion of it, like the message is the, the core part. I'm thinking, well, that's just a, most of the points in that are just as relevant today as they were all those years ago. Uh, in, in very different society. And you know, I sort of see so many people who get up on stages that public speaking is a much, maybe a much bigger thing now than, than it was then, but it's still a very lucrative profession mm-hmm. for people. And, and it's still a very influential profession as well in, in many ways. And uh, an imp- uh, influential tool for, for people who aren't professional speakers, although you could argue that in many ways politicians are professional speakers to some degree. Yeah. Um, but but uh, as... The, the same kinds of things of like is it is it to entertain and to, to for you for your ego so you look good and the people love you or is it actually to challenge people and are you actually giving something of value to people that are taken away like you like you said it very you phrased it very well in the book of it should be something that causes you to think not just something that you go along and you feel good whilst you're there and it's like yeah, yeah. Um, we see a lot of that still I think. 
Whereas I don't know how many times people actually go somewhere and feel challenged by somebody's talk. And, uh, and maybe, again, that relates to some of this thing of people do not like being made to feel uncomfortable. It's hard. And, you know, even today, for sure, there are politicians, there are self-development, personal development gurus, there are social media influencers, all in a sense descendants of the sophists. My, all in a sense using a, not rhetoric as it's normally understood, but certainly some kind of rhetoric like uh, that, that's part and parcel of what they, they do for a living. Um, and, you know, like it, it, in that situation, it is difficult for people to avoid the temptation to just say stuff that gets a reaction. There are people that make an entire career out of being contrarian uh, in the media uh, and just saying things that they know are going to be shocking. Um, and uh, there's a whole industry of that that's quite, yeah. you know, in a sense, that's slightly sinister uh, thing, like, you know, uh, like news uh, programs paying, uh, like, the political opponents of their perspective to come on and say crazy stuff uh, so that the audience has got, I can't believe what that did just said on CNN, or, like, it's outrageous. They just this guy on Fox, they just said the most outrageous like thing and people get really worked up about it, but like they, they that's engineered, right? Um, they know that you're going to be provoked by certain things, and the guests do it on purpose. And yeah. and also the way that it, you know the industry and political memoirs is great. Like, like the uh, obviously we're at the moment we have in mind the the Trump presidency, but you no, know, it's set aside Donald Trump himself. The the number of people that have had million dollar book deals um, from the White House staff is outrageous and it's a, an egregious problem yeah. um, because you know these people are earning far more money from book deals than they are from their jobs in government yeah. and you know they thrive in chaos because the more ridiculous and catastrophic like, the, the, the situation is that they're involved with the, the more books they're going to sell when they, they comment on it later we're kind of rewarding the, them for like you know, standing by and, and, and watching chaos happen, it's uh, so potentially we you know we reward people for saying things that are sensational, or shocking, or we reward people just for telling us things that we already want to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't go far wrong just by figuring out what people want to hear and telling them exactly what they want to hear. But they're probably not going to learn that much from it. If you write a book and you only get positive reviews for it. It's probably rubbish, right? <laughs> it's a, it's probably bland, right? Show me a famous, innovating, important historical figure that didn't have any critics. My favorite example of someone who did would be Charles Darwin. Mm. He was ridiculed mercilessly uh, during his lifetime. People drew cartoons of him repeatedly in the newspaper, portraying him as a monkey. Like they uh, thought he was uh, the devil incarnate. You know, they thought he what he was saying was was outrageous and ridiculous because he was saying something that was innovative and important. So I, you know, even Shakespeare yeah. had bad reviews. One reviewer called him an upstart crow. Even long after his death, T. S. Eliot said he thought Hamlet was not a good, was a terrible play. Like it didn't make any sense. Yeah. So I think if you're saying something meaningful and important and original, like Socrates, you're going to rock the boat and there are going to be people that don't like that. And if you're just saying stuff that everybody likes, you're probably just appealing to the lowest common denominator in a sense and 
you know, you're saying something that's vanilla and generic and bland. Yeah. It's not interesting enough to be offensive to anyone. But if you speak the truth, there's always going to be people that don't like that. And it's not going to, you're not going to be embraced by, um, you know, as big an audience. So there's always a tension. To, yeah. There's always a tension to sell out, right? Like if you say what people want to hear or what the, a media outlet want you to say, you know, you're potentially going to be. And that was Socrates' concern with the sophists. Like he said, you guys are literally competing against each other to see who can get the biggest round of applause. He goes, you, there's no way that you can stand up there and stick to saying things that you genuinely believe. That's gone out of the window, right? You're just literally saying whatever you think is going to impress the audience more than the next guy, regardless of whether it's true or false, or regardless of what the consequences for society are. Like, it's like it's just turned into a game for you. And he said, we need to kind of back away from that and, you know, really try, get back to, to trying to really uncover the truth uh, and think about the ethics of, of what we're saying and doing. And the yeah. Stoics were thoroughly immersed in, in that side of the Socratic tradition. Interestingly, I've been uh, running a, a series within my podcast uh, about humour and presentations and comedy and I've been lucky enough to get connected with a lot of professional comedians and in the chats mm -hmm. I've been having, it's, it's been fascinating. But um, this makes me think of comedy as well. Whilst you were talking there, I was thinking about how true that is and very obviously true, I think, in that world. I, uh, some of the people who are considered the most amazing comedians who've ever lived or uh, some of them no longer with us, but, you know, you sort of think to... Uh, um, the the most outrageous people like Lenny Bruce is considered one of the yeah. sort of edgiest people out there, and he certainly was not short of critics. But he stayed true to his uh, to his act and to what he wanted to do. And uh, I think people like George Carlin as well, who I absolutely loved, was uh, um, you know very much saying stuff that challenged people as well as well as being funny. And of course, not everyone is going to like that. Um, but you can see there are so many people who go for the blander side of that where they're trying to please pretty much everybody never going to escape all criticism but you know uh, enough to to be popular with with the vast majority of people we see we see very much that the people pleasing thing actually means you can't be true to yeah. your values and you can't be as creative either as soon as you're creative and you present something new to people especially if it's radically new if you're coming at things from a new angle then you're going to alienate some people. Like, and it may be that people look back on you. Same with music, same with anything. Yeah. You know, 10, 20 years later, you might be remembered as a historic innovator, but at the time, there's probably people that just don't get it like, or can't stand it like, because, precisely because it's new. That's yeah. the paradox, the paradox um, of innovation. Like, you, there's always going to be some people that think it's a, like, it's a terrible idea. Um, so the Stoics... You know, they, it's not that they hate rhetoric. They just think it's like a loaded weapon and we need to be more careful about how we use it. Mm. So particularly we need to be careful about how we use rhetoric on ourselves. We see that clear as day in therapy. Like, so there might be ways you could use, even use rhetoric like to motivate yourself and so on in a, kind of, in a, in a constructive way. You know, and that there's a way that there's room for using metaphors to communicate ideas in therapy and so on. But... Yeah. When you're listening to the client's internal dialogue, when you ask them to write down their thoughts and tell you what's going on, if I sit in a consulting room in front of a client and I say, like, tell me how you're feeling. Like, how did you, how did you feel about uh, something that happened to you yesterday? Like, and then I just listen to what they're saying. Um, they, they're oblivious to the fact often that they're using 
selective thinking, like overgeneralization. Um, that you know they're using these kind of like vivid metaphors to evoke emotion, um, and rather than just describing the facts more objectively. So you get this kind of whole layer of like language being used to manipulate, distort emotion, and usually people are oblivious to the fact that they're doing it. It's just how they talk, like. Someone shot me down in flames. They tore a strip off me. You mean they said that they didn't, they didn't agree with something you said? Like, you put it like that, it seems trivial, right? Yeah. Like, well, I guess so. Like, you know, <laughs> but, but it, like, it, it felt as if, you know. Um, but do you think it's the, it could be the language that you're using like, that might be? We, and another thing I'd say is that people often say, people often think of the language as a consequence of their feelings. So they go, um, you know, like, uh, I felt really angry. So that was why I was talking about it like that and saying it was a disaster and this guy was an asshole and an idiot and stuff. And, like, you know, I can't, I'm talking, like, it's just how I feel. Like, I'm, you know, it's just the way I talk about it, like, it's, you know, because I'm so angry about it. Like, so it's the feelings they think that cause them to talk about it like that. But what we'd normally say is, well, could it be also the other way around? Could it maybe also be the way you're talking about it is causing your feelings yeah. or maintaining them? Or the way I'd explain it to clients is, gosh, you know, yeah, like I'm starting to get quite angry about it, listening to the way you describe it. And But hang on a minute. Like, you know, maybe do you think it's the way you're describing it that's contributing to it? Because it's starting to make me feel quite anxious or quite angry. Like, if I, yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm starting to think, maybe you're right. Maybe this guy is an asshole. Like, maybe this is a complete disaster. You, you're pretty persuasive. Like, you know, like, but do you not think maybe you're having that effect on yourself? And, it, like, if that's deliberate, then fair play. But do mm. you want to do that? Is, are you doing it on purpose? Well, obviously, no, I'm not doing it on purpose. Like, like maybe you should, like, look more carefully at, at what's going on there. Yeah. And, that was, that was definitely one of the valuable things that I took away from from your book was the the decatastrophizing in life and thinking yeah that's really something we can all benefit from and probably need to check in with ourselves more regularly than we generally do on things like that. But uh, one one of the other things that I that I also particularly got from that was was about the uh, about just the thinking about purpose in life and that how much better the world would be if we if we all had at least more of a personal philosophy even if it wasn't stoicism that people just don't seem to have their own philosophy and uh, what what do you think that um I was trying to get the right way to say this, but I mean, philosophy was really taught in schools, right? And in ancient Greece, ancient when it was like considered a primary subject, right? But it's not really now, so. Uh, is this is it something that you think should be being taught in schools? I think it should be being taught in schools, but I think it's always going to be a problem for the state because, um, gosh, this sounds almost like kind of a radical thing to say, but it, it, I think it's a, it's obvious to say if you get kids to think too radically um, about politics, ethics, society like uh, any state is going to start to feel a little bit anxious about mm. whether you're raising a generation of uh, revolutionaries or something or like, you know, like, do we, like look what happened to Socrates, right? Like, are we going to have whole classrooms full of little Socrateses? 
like questioning everything like really deeply. And I'm like, can we handle that? You know, so I can see why society, the older generations and, and also the state in general and the education system, we have ironically do have a, a vested interest in in discouraging to uh, too much radical question. Yeah. For sure. I mean, people that work in education uh, are well-intentioned, but they they are in a situation where they, you know, it's difficult for them if the kids start to radically question the whole uh, premise of the establishment that they're in and, you know, things like that, the whole, like, premises on which the teaching methods are based, you know, like, if you question too many things, the whole thing... Starts to fall apart. So do you see. think then <laughs> that uh, if we taught more critical thinking and philosophy <laughs> in schools, it would lead to anarchy? Is that? Yeah, like, I, I think it might. I think, and I think that's that's the anxiety anyway. Would it in practice? I don't know. I think I think maybe it would cause a lot of disruption. But I think certainly people are motivated to keep it uh, within certain bounds because there's a fear that if kids start to question things too radically, it will, you know, that will turn into something resembling anarchy for sure. sure. Um, but, you know, like, why, do, why don't we have a philosophy of life? I'll tell you, there are many reasons, but I'll tell you one. Because kids are born, you know, they grow up, they look around, they copy what they see other people doing. Like, that's how children develop to a large extent. They look up at their dad and the mum and see how they respond to things. Like, you know, everyone can see that, like, children emulate their, peer, their parents, like, their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then gradually they begin to think more independently for themselves to go through these developmental stages. So the, the problem, one of the problems with that is that you get a kind of biased perception of things. I mean, I think someone could write an entire book very simply about the way in which our thinking is biased by the simple given fact that we learn about other people mainly by observing their external behavior. Like, for instance, um, we massively underestimate how prevalent mental health problems are um, because people don't normally tell you that they have... uh, the 52% of Americans, the majority of Americans, have at some point in their past met diagnostic criteria for a psychiatric condition, Mm -hmm. Right. But if you're sitting on a bus, you wouldn't think most of the people on this bus like, have had a mental health problem in the past or currently have one. Like, because they don't wear a little badge or like yeah, have yeah. a hat on or something to tell you that. Like, so as a kid growing up, you're looking around and you develop a kind of you construct a picture of the world, which is false, right? It's not true. Like, partly because a lot of things are hidden from you. Um, we underestimate how much debt people are in. Because mm. people don't wear a T-shirt saying I owe, I owe the bank like a hundred grand or whatever, so we know like you know we know that debt is very common in in many uh, in America and in the UK and Canada, um, but people look around them and think, geez, that guy that I work with has got a fancy car, like, and how come he can afford all these expensive clothes and stuff? But often we don't realise how much debt people are getting in in order to maintain these appearances. It's uh, the people are living a lie in a sense. Also, yeah. how prevalent physical chronic health conditions are if we knew like somehow uh, if the world was more transparent and we knew what people were feeling that they had backache or they were anxious about a surgery they had coming up and stuff it would change the way we understand someone in the shop being a bit short with us 
or a colleague, you know, not paying attention properly in a meeting. Like, so we misunderstand the dynamic of what's going on all, all around us all the time because there's loads of really basic, important information that we just don't see. Like, uh, simple stuff that, that people just like to keep private. So it's hidden, like it's a world that's hidden from us. And so children grow up and they look around and they see this kind of fake version of the world around them. And that's kind of what they base their, like, generation after generation after generation, from ancient Greece down to present day, like they get a fake view of the world as they're growing up by its very nature, right? And then they also see people trying to accumulate money and reputation, and they think, that must be important. Like, looks like it's like the main thing. You know, like everyone else seems to be doing it. Like, if you were a kid and you're looking around, wouldn't you think a lot of people seem to think money is important and property and reputation status and stuff like that, right? But when people reflect on it, what the Stoics and Socrates said is that within our own hearts and in our own minds, when we reflect on these things, if we say, you know, as Aristotle phrased it, actually, what do you want money for the sake of? Like, if you dig deeper, it's just a means to an end. Nobody wants money for its own sake. It's just about paper, like our number on a computer screen. Like, you know, it's like, it's for, sure. Aristotle said, yeah, it's, it's simply a tool, it's a means to an end. It's of no value in and of itself. It's only a value insofar as it contributes to eudaimonia or fulfillment somehow, if it, whether or not it even does. So people think it's going to lead to freedom or happiness or something like fulfillment, and that's why they pursue money. But often they lose sight of that and just become fixated on the means to the end and forget what it was that they wanted it for in the first place. And then that often leads them in the opposite direction. So they accumulate yeah. money in a way that leads them further and further away from fulfillment. But if you were a kid, you'd look around and think, I can't see that people are trying to get eudaimonia, that they're trying to become fulfilled. All I see is I'm running around after money and arguing about it and, you know, and trying to defend their ego and like, boost their status and reputation and stuff. So you can see why people, like children growing up, generation after generation, get duped into thinking that externals are the meaning of life. And then, you know, it's only through doing some sort of existential crisis almost that people, like the pandemic for many people, they start to think, yeah. maybe, maybe, this, maybe all this shit won't make me happy. You know, maybe, that, maybe it doesn't really matter how many likes I get on Facebook or, like, you know, how big my house is, you know. Like, and the, the idea that, yeah, shit, you know, we could all die, you know, like, even though actually in, in reality, um, the vast ninety nine percent of people are more likely to die are, are going to die from something else, yeah. Like not coronavirus. And the corona, the pandemic has been trivialized by politicians and the media right out of the gate. Uh, to you know, epidemiologists, it was clearly much more severe than the serious problem than the, uh, many politicians were making it out to be, and the, the public got confused by that. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless. At the same time, the fact is that you're more likely to die of heart disease or cancer. Like, you know, something's definitely going to get you yeah. eventually. Like, we all die eventually, but it's probably not going to be the coronavirus. But the fact that it looms large in our society, I think, has made a lot of people question their values, think about their mortality. And also things like in Toronto, where I lived before, I was amazed when I was a kid eating out in a restaurant was something that you did. We, when I was a kid, maybe we did that twice a year. 
like or you know maybe as i got older i saw people would do it once every couple of weeks or something as a treat mm-hmm. whereas now the, the the young people in toronto i watch them and my friends eat out in restaurants almost every day sometimes twice a day right. and there is no way economically why that that makes sense because when you spend money in a restaurant or in a bar that's gone you know it disappears it's an incredibly extravagant like way to spend money um and so i think in lockdown people have suddenly been you know becoming uh, more modest in their lifestyle in many cases and I think it's led a lot of people to question whether they needed to do some of the things that they were doing before. Maybe they're even happier. I like, noticed that with some of my clients. Like some mm-hmm. of them are really appreciating uh, being at home and is making them reevaluate things in their lives and thinking, actually, uh, I maybe don't need to be uh, commuting all the time. Maybe uh, there are mm-hmm. more important things than working all these hours. And, uh-huh. um, and people are reading time. a lot more books. Yeah. And some people tell me that they're happier doing that. They go for walks in the park on their own, like they're happier doing that. Yeah. And then you might, the next question would be, so what, how, why were you before like going out to bars all the time and fancy restaurants and things like so much if it wasn't, it was costing a lot of money and it wasn't really making you feel happier fulfilled? And, and often the answer to that is, I don't know, it's just what people do. And other because other people were doing it, right? Yeah. And it was a prevailing culture and I just kind of like fell in with it. It was the yeah. norm. Didn't like, and again, that's... Yeah, it's like it comes back to this thing of kids looking around and thinking, I don't know, what are you supposed to do in life? Apparently you're meant to go around chasing after money and fame. Yeah. And it seems to be what everyone else is doing. Like, but then in a crisis, people are like, yeah, that would really make you happy. So, you know, the Stoics want us to accelerate that process. Think right now about your own mortality. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed. You know, it's too late then. Like, you know, think about it now and think about, you know, what's, what, what really is the purpose in your life? What's actually going to make you fulfilled? People spend a lot of time doing things. No one has ever had on their tombstone written, um, I wish I'd spent more time on social media. You'd hope not. Right. <laughs> or, on their, or on their deathbed. Yeah. Went, if only I'd spent more time on, uh, on Facebook. No, exactly. Uh, if only I'd watch more YouTube videos. Or something. <laughs> right. But we should, the Stoics want us to put, do it now. Like, ask yourself right now. Like if you were on your deathbed, like what would you, what do you think that you should have spent your time doing during life? Um, you should live each moment as if it's your last, in a sense. Yeah. In terms of kind of recalibrating uh, your values right, and thinking about what truly, truly matters to you, so right. that you don't just go along with the prevailing morality of the majority of people that you see on the outside, but you dig deeper inside and, and reflect on you know, like what, what the point of these things really is. You know, it, it generally gets said that uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and this is almost a form of trying to step into mm-hmm. your hindsight in the future and have it now. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's uh, We call it time projection sometimes in therapy. It's, yeah. That's a very simple technique, but a very powerful one. You know, one of the easiest things to do is just ask people, you know, imagine a year from now, uh, 10 years from now, if you're looking back on the situation, like how would you feel differently about it like so how would you describe it differently what advice would you give yourself that's a technique i think everyone should do periodically because it's very uh, very helpful if if stoicism was like the dominant world philosophy uh, prevalent everywhere what do you think the world would look like um 
what would the world look like if Stoicism was the dominant philosophy? I don't know if I could even envisage uh, what it would look like, to be honest. I mean, I almost feel like we need the chaos and the confusion and, like, you know, we, we have to have something to, to, to work on. Right. Like, you know, if, if life was perfect, um, you know, we, it's the journey towards wisdom maybe that matters like, more than the goal itself. Although the founding text of Stoicism was a utopian text. Zeno's Republic did describe what you're asking for, which is a description of a utopian Stoic society. Mm. Uh, but his version, so I'm a little bit split because if I told you what his utopian vision was, it wouldn't sound anything like how someone would describe it today. It sounds almost like a kind of anarcho-communist sort of state. Um, men and women wore the same clothes. Law courts were abolished. Currencies abolished. Properties held in common. Children were raised in common. Um, there's no legal conflicts, no wars. Um, everybody's equal. Everybody's admitted regardless of race or gender, uh, uh, you know, nobility of birth. Um, physical condition or whatever. So these are the things we're told, like about the, the Stoic Republic. Mm. Um, I think that we, it it would be it would have to be a more modest lifestyle that people adopted, the where there was more consideration extended towards poorer nations, um, and a greater emphasis on international law and human rights. Yeah. Do do you think there's anyone who even comes close to like the philosopher king style of leadership of Marcus Aurelius? So? Not today. Um, I don't think so. Like people often ask that question and they want me to kind of point. I, I really couldn't find. Uh, there are politicians that I might admire certain qualities of, but that the no, um, because all politicians in the current climate are like or certainly the majority of them are morally compromised to some extent by things like you know the sources of funding that support them the relationship with big media outlets and stuff like that yeah like you know so the, the very system in which they operate i think makes it virtually impossible for them to embrace philosophical values the answer i usually give to this question is that if someone asked me to identify the people that I've met in life that most closely resemble a Stoic sage, in all honesty, um, they're people that were like regular guys and women that you would never have heard of who lived in small towns, like in relative obscurity. And several of them are, are people who are recovering drug addicts or alcoholics. Like, um, so they're not famous politicians or celebrities. Like, so there are people that just lead a very simple life and maybe hit rock bottom and then clawed their way back from it and decided that they want to try and make the world a better place and help other people and are quite sincere about it. And those are people that left an impression on me and made me think that they embodied some of these cardinal virtues of stoicism. Um, but they're not people that live in the limelight. Mm. Do, do you ever ask yourself what would Marcus Aurelius do in this situation? Or? Yeah, a lot. I mean, you know, we they, the Stoics actually tell us to do that. So Epictetus told his students to several times, he'd say, ask yourself what Zeno would do or what Socrates would do. And I think sometimes people get confused by the history, right? So like when you ask that question, like you always get somebody giving a smart aleck response, like I don't know, he'd probably like have lots of slaves to 
deal with the problem for him or something like that, you know. But it's the principle that matters. What would somebody do if they had courage and self-discipline and stoic wisdom? They believe that virtue is the only true good. So this is why the Stoics say what we should do is construct a hypothetical sage, a hypothetical ideal, kind of abstract way, and, and think, what would the sage do? What would the perfect wise man or woman do in this situation? So we don't get distracted by the historical details associated with any particular role model. But I, you know, often I'll think, what would Marcus Aurelius or what would Socrates um, or what would somebody somebody else do? There's mm. lots of techniques like this we use in therapy. One of my favourite ones is, if you imagine there's like a whole panel of uh, people that are completely impartial, um, completely rational observers, and then you try to explain to them why you think your boss is an asshole, like, or why you think it's it's just uh, uh, an unbearable like injustice that. Uh, you know, your neighbour was rude to you in the street yesterday, or something like that, or whatever. Um, and you, you know, you're like you're in court, and you're trying to put your case to them, and and then imagine how how they might respond, and the questions they would ask you, and what they, they think about it. Like, because it's kind of looking, it's like looking in a mirror or something, and realizing how absurd. My, you know, often they, a lot of these techniques are really just about making us more aware of the arbitrariness and absurdness of some of our our uh, existing attitudes you uh, you recently had a big chat with uh, ryan holiday what did you guys end up talking about i think we were talking about marcus aurelius um a lot about the history and stuff so i did this podcast and uh, you know i'm very interested in what ryan does because it's a different approach and it's a different audience uh, that he has like so i think it's really cool that he's embraced stoicism and, uh, you know, I can't enjoy chatting to, to Ryan. Were there any points uh, of difference that came up? Or? No, we, I think we agree. Um, I've never really talked to him about things that we disagree about. Like, we just kind of get chatting about Stoicism and about Marcus Aurelius. And uh, I think we, I think at least in the discussion that we had, we kind of mm. pretty much just agreed with each other and we're just enjoying talking about our hobby. <laughs> I found, I mean, I found his books and and your book uh, and and a lot of your online content as well to be some of the most accessible ways into understanding stoicism and being able to apply that. Uh, and I said to you before we started recording, one of the things I really loved about your audio book was that you recorded it, and because you don't often hear regional accents in audio books, and it was really refreshing to hear your voice and hear a Scottish accent in an audio book. And, and you, of course, you read your own material very well so it was it was very enjoyable it was a bit of a, a gamble because my publisher wanted the, us to use a voice actor and we had a bit of a debate about it but i had to go to austria i was going to austria to conuntum where marcus aurelius wrote the meditations and so we only agreed at the last minute that i would record the audiobook and so i had to do it in pretty grueling like eight or nine hour uh, sessions you'd maybe normally just do a couple of hours at a time uh, in the in the studio, what's hard about that is you have to sit in a stool in front of a little thing, like so it's kind of like eight hours or whatever on your back. It's kind of hard work, yeah. Um, and then just like kind of saying the same things over and over again. But we did it, and uh, I had my bags with me. I remember, and I went straight from the recording studio to the airport to catch my flight. 
um, just finished like just in time, and uh, just in the nick of time for her to catch the flight to Austria. Yeah. You don't you, come you across go? in the book. It just uh, sounds <laughs> sound okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had to. It was in the studio that does Paw Patrol. You know the kids. Uh, I know of it. Cartoon. Yeah. I've never actually watched right. it, but uh, yeah. no, not a fan. No, I don't right. have kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, they normally do Paw Patrol, but they you. So you said earlier about like I don't. I can't think of anything that, that Ryan says that I particularly disagree with, um, except like in. Uh, obstacles the way he mentions some of the role models he mentions aren't people that I would affect as role models uh, but that's inevitable when I reviewed that mm-hmm. book I said yeah I think we have to assume that that's bound to happen if you pick political figures and uh, and so on but the there are people that write books in stoicism that I don't agree with um, and sometimes it's because they make they'll make psychological claims. Like I, I, I love Bill Irvine's book, but there's bits of it that I don't agree with in terms of psychology or mm. the interpretation of stoicism. And then there's a couple of there's books sometimes by people who try to make stoicism into this kind of macho thing, where it's like toxic masculinity almost. It's kind of this idea of like being hyper, um, like tough and and they're confusing it with low-case stoicism sometimes like it's a kind of cynical philosophy where you you know just don't really give a shit about anything and don't let anything hurt your feelings and and, you know but there's no social dimension to it no compassion or anything like that at all so stoicism was the one of the main influences on early christian ethics yeah and when you bear that in mind you know all the stuff about brotherly love ethical cosmopolitanism you know, that, all that comes into Christianity in part from Stoicism. So then these people that kind of think it's all about having a stiff upper lip and not giving a shit about other people, like that clearly isn't compatible with that whole dimension of Stoicism. Sometimes what I say to them is when you read Marcus Aurelius, have you noticed that on almost every page of the meditations, he talks about compassion, natural affection, justice, fairness, kindness towards others, uh, cosmopolitanism, or social virtue, basically, in general. It's one of the main topics of the entire book. And what really interests me is that sometimes people who kind of want this macho, stuff up lip interpretation of stoicism um, will say, I didn't notice any of that. Like, they've read the entire book, and they just haven't, they've had a kind of blind spot. It's like almost every page he's talking about this stuff. But they just ignored that, and again, it's like selective thinking. It reminds me of a quote from William Blake. He said, we both read the Bible day and night, but you read black or I read white. Like, so they managed to read this entire book, and they say they loved this book, but they hadn't yeah. noticed like, half of what was written in it. Um, so I'm in favor of kind of redressing that imbalance by putting more emphasis on the, the social virtue side of Stoicism, the cosmopolitan tradition that stems from it, um, and also what the Stoics have to say about uh, anger and, and love um, and the, the interpersonal emotions. Um, that was always integral to Stoicism, but for some of the people that are writing about it now, that's completely left out. Yeah, I guess that. Um, I, loved, I loved your book and I loved the way you put it, and I agree with you on all these values. I think they're important, and we want to see more of that. To me, that is, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius is, is still one of the if not the greatest example of uh, great leadership, how, how it 
can be done when you have someone who has wisdom and compassion and um, makes the best decisions they can and keeps themselves humble as well. I think, uh, uh, so I can't think of anyone else that uh, that really comes close. But uh, but uh, the book that you wrote about him dresses things up so well, puts the case so well, and you can start off talking about um, his deathbed experience. Actually, that was kind of interesting. I just maybe want to come to that before we sort of wrap things up. But... Um, when you were talking about the deathbed experience, you're talking about kind of things that were going on in his mind. Is that is that stuff that uh, that you were imagining was going on in his mind, or where did the that last chapter of the book? Almost like uh, a couple. Of, see, I've I, I should have said more about this in the book. When I do if I do a second edition, I'll I'll, I'll fix this because um, there were some people. A couple of people reviewed that book, and one person reviewed it, and they said they described it as a novel. And a couple of other people reviewed it and said, well, I thought the stoicism was good, but I don't understand why he made up all these stories about Marcus Aurelius. And I thought, look at the footnotes. Like, they're, they're all derived from the surviving Roman histories, right? The, this is biographical. Like, it's uh, based on uh, the historical evidence. And, like, these are true stories, or at least, they, you know, they're, they're based on the, the historical accounts that we have. Um, it's not. It's not fiction. Um, it's biography. It's historical biography, um, and all all of it's referenced. Um, in the last chapter, some people said, "Oh, someone emailed me once." Like, I hope they don't take offence if I mention this. I won't mention their name. But someone emailed me and said, "I liked your book. But I thought the last chapter was terrible because I just can't imagine that Marcus Willis would have said any of these things." Like, and you're just putting words in his mouth. And, duh, 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 duh. and I said. Like that entire chapter is just based on paraphrases from like, and it's mainly just direct quotes that are rearranged. Almost all of them are from Marcus Aurelius, and there's like two or three from Seneca or Epictetus, like that I've inserted. But it's mainly um, just a kind of reshuffled paraphrase of different translations of the meditations. But also, I read a little bit of, of Greek. Like, so when I was doing the book, writing with Marcus, running my courses, I, I have the dual text and I consult the original Greek. Like, so some of it maybe is kind of more based on what the, the original Greek says and some of it's based on uh, some of the common translations. But those are all essentially Marcus Aurelius's words. Um, but maybe I should have a footnote that kind of like emphasizes that. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was strange that somebody said Marcus Aurelius would never have said something like that. It was like, it's just... Those are quotes from Barclays, really, like it's or paraphrases from them. But what I did was organize it more thematically because meditations isn't organized thematically. It yeah. jumps around from one subject to another. So I wanted to kind of make it flow more like a, a speech. And also when I wrote it, because um, it was, uh, I knew that there was going to be an audio book. I specifically wrote the last chapter so that when people listen to it in the audio book, it would be like a guided meditation. And I thought, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm just going to do that and see if anybody kind of experiences that way. And sure enough, a lot of the reviewers, people that have emailed me said, oh, you know, I just listened to the last chapter like four or five times. I listen to it in my car every day. So it's like a, I treat it like a visualization technique or something. And I thought maybe it's over the top, folks. It's all about dying. And I, I thought, you know, maybe it's too much. And I thought, no, I'll just do it anyway and see what people think. But like, generally when people have reviewed it, that's their favourite part of the book. 
Yeah, apart from that one person that didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, did, I did like it. I like the uh, the sort of whole thing of not not necessarily embracing death, just seeing it as inevitable and it's just something that's going to happen uh, and being okay with it, being at peace with it. That was that was like uh, you know if I, if I if you have a choice of how you're going to go, that's a good way to go. Oh, here's like um um I like to one day sometime I'll 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 do an interview where I talk more about the process of writing. Because um, I'm not very experienced at it, and I say, well, I, have, I suppose I've been writing books for quite a long time and stuff, but I don't really think of myself as a professional writer. Like, although that is pretty much what I do all the time now. Yeah. Um, I'm now doing a graphic novel, which seems really weird to me. I don't know very much mm. about comics and graphic novels, but I'm well and truly in the middle of doing it now. So yes. part of the process of um, writing that book was, I thought. I mean, with the publisher and, and so on, we kind of arrived at the conclusion that we'd do a chronological account of Marcus Aurelius's life. And then I thought, okay, so there's clearly a problem with this because the, it starts off kind of with a training montage. Or whatever, the, you, you start off with his education, which I love. It's the most interesting part for me, actually. But it's kind of a little bit black. It's not a very dramatic place to open the book. Um, and so I thought, okay, what's a we need to dig deep and look for a radical solution to that. And I thought, well, let's start with him dying. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah. And then we can go back and go through the rest of his life in chronological order. Like, so that wasn't obvious at first. I thought, let's start with him dying. Okay, now we've got something kind of dramatic for the first chapter. And then we can go into the kind of like his education and stuff. And then I thought, well, this creates a problem for me because now I'm not really sure how to end the book. Um, because then we have the civil war with Ovidius Cassius, and, and then uh, what happens after that is that Commodus then goes and ruins everything, basically, and overturns a lot of things that his father did. Uh, and I thought, well, we don't really want to get into that because it's not that relevant to the story, and it's not, it's a bit of a negative note to end on anyway, historically. So I thought, how, how the heck am I going to end this story? Like, I've, I've written it backwards. Um, and I thought, I've no idea. I'll just have to write it and then I'll figure it out when I get it to the end, hopefully, touch wood. And then as I was writing, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. Like, I can't think of a way to end it. I, I feel like at the end, he, he asked, we have to cover him dying. And I thought, well, what if I could, what if I could do it twice? Like, so we have him dying in the first chapter and also in the last chapter. I thought, I can't do that. It's the same thing twice. Uh, and I thought, well, what if I tell it from a completely different perspective? And then I thought, what if I shift to a first-person perspective? Um, and uh, at the time, that seemed like a ridiculous idea. I've never read a book that changes uh, to first-person perspective in the last chapter or, like, so abruptly. Um, so I thought, it, it seems weird. Like, can I get away with doing this? I don't know. Are you allowed to do that? I feel it worked, yeah. I think, it, I, there, was only, I think there was one person that said, why the hell has it suddenly changed to first person in the last chapter? But everyone else seemed to, to be good with that. And so that was my attempt to figure out how I could solve this problem <laughs> I, of the narrative structure. Like, of, you know, if we tell his story, like, it needs to start off and end with something memorable. Yeah, and I thought I, I sneakily I'm going to use a framing story where I tell the same story, part of the story twice, but from a different perspective. Mm. That was a that's an odd thing to do, um, but uh, yeah, like you say, it's a great, a great I, device. I, I, I feel it worked very well. 
Um, so I'm very, very cognizant of time, and it's been yeah. really wonderful chatting with you. But I'm also aware, you know, we you have your own life to live outside of being a podcast guest as well. And so, so I want to bring things to to a close by asking that. Hopefully, people, even if they haven't come across Dozen before, have a little bit more of an idea about that, and 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 also why it's such an interesting area. I think it's relevant in leadership. I think it's relevant in speaking, public speaking, uh, and really just to all of life. I mean, just. Uh, philosophy of life is so important and um, how can people who may be coming across you for the first time find out more about you uh, and come connect, maybe come connect with you on, on social media um well my website is just donaldrobertson.name uh, it's just my name and instead of .com it's .name and if they go there I've got like a lot of e-learning courses and downloads and stuff about stoicism they can check out and my blog I've got a medium I blog that I've put a lot of stuff on and I've written six books that can check out the other ones as well if they want and uh, I've, all my social media links are there but also I'm one of the founding members of a non-profit organization called Modern Stoicism and its website is modernstoicism.com it's run by a team of multidisciplinary team of volunteers so classicists, philosophers, psychologists. And it was founded by Christopher Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought in Exeter University in England. So it's modern stoicism that organises Stoic Week and the Stoic On Conference and all this kind of stuff. And everything it does is basically free. And I should also plug, we, have, we had the Stoic On Conference scheduled for Toronto. And obviously we had to cancel that because of the pandemic. So we now have a virtual conference on the 17th of October and just for kicks, we decided to do it by donation. So people can just pay whatever they like for a ticket. And it'll be interesting to see how many people. Like, I thought I'm assuming that we're going to get a, a, lot, uh, a lot of people attending that way. I just announced it a couple of weeks ago, and I think we've got about 150 people that have already registered. And right. I was just like teasing it. So I'm guessing we're going to have like three or 400 people uh, attending once we actually start the, the campaign to... Uh, promote it online properly. Well, I'll have um, to get the, the link from you and uh, I'll yeah. get, we'll get the episode out before that comes up so cool. maybe get a few more people on. Get some people to come along and uh, they'll see a lot of talks by different authors and uh, experts in stoicism. Fantastic. Um, so to, to bring things to a close then, what would be one word of a, a advice or a call to action or a thought that you would like to leave people with today? I thought that I would like to leave. I think that I always write in books. When I, if anyone ever asked me to sign a book, and anyone that's got a book uh, that I've put my name on, one I always write a quote from Horace that's dare to be wise. And I think the fundamental thing is like to to really just like uh, the clues in the name, philosophy, the love of wisdom, like to actually value truth and wisdom, and to think it's worth spending time and effort reflecting on your values. That's what Socrates wanted more than anything, was just to persuade people that an unexamined life is not worth living and that, you know, just the desire, like the craving to, to really penetrate more deeply and really understand ourselves uh, and really understand our, our own beliefs and values, uh, I think is the, is the main thing. And, and don't let anyone else kind of distract you from that in life. You know, that's the way to get in touch with your, your true goal in yeah. life and kind of start to get back on the, the path to eudaimonia and personal fulfillment, I believe. 
That's great. That's great. Think thought to end up on that. I can personally highly recommend how to think like a Roman emperor. I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, well, well worth the time to listen or read uh, whichever version you prefer. But uh, Donald Robertson, thank you for joining me today. I've, I've learned a lot speaking with you and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Cool. Likewise. Thanks for inviting me along. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you'd like to know more about Stoic philosophy, I do recommend checking out Donald's book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. He also has a lot of free resources online and on his website, so do check those out too. Very good and active Facebook group all about Stoicism and what is and isn't Stoicism. And often people asking lots of questions in there could be a good place to find out more. Next week, I'm going to have with me a master in the area of entrepreneurship and business. And this is the author and entrepreneur, Daniel Priestley, who's written books like How to Be a Key Person of Influence, Entrepreneur Revolution, Oversubscribed, 24 Assets, prolific writing, and definitely a great guy to be interviewing. We had a fantastic chat, and I know you're not going to want to miss that. Please make sure you are liked and subscribed to the show. We'll see you next time. Have a great week.